0: I'm grateful you are here. Uh, just a few housekeeping things before we, we dive into this text together and pray. Um, I wasn't here last week, and every time I'm not here, incredible things happen amazing sermons, incredible testimonies. And uh, if you didn't hear Matt's sermon and if you didn't hear Allison's testimony, I encourage you to go on our website and view those, or you can check out the blog post that's going to be posted soon if it's not already. Megan's going to drop uh, that testimony in our blog. On the website. I was super encouraged, uh, you know, Monday afternoon when I was able to watch and experience that. So I just want to thank Matt and thank Allison and all the others. We have such a deep preaching bench now here. When we launched our first year, it was just Jeff and I, and now God has brought people to us who have the gift of preaching and want to share that joyful burden with us. So uh, the reason I wasn't here is I went to our sister church, uh, Grace Life Beachside in Ormond Beach. And they were celebrating last Sunday their five-year anniversary. Can you believe that? I don't know how many of you were here when we sent Jeff and Lauren and five other families over there, but it's already been five years. That wasn't a church plant per se, it was a replant. That was a traditional established church uh, that had just reconsidered their mission, their philosophy of ministry, their vision. They wanted some fresh leadership. So they called Jeff and I, we had lunch with the leadership, and they invited us to come and help. And, uh, you know, Jeff grew up in Ponce Inlet. He's a surfer. He's native Floridian. And uh, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a land guy, you know. Uh, so Jeff said, I'll go. And I said, I'm sure you will because it's right on the beach in Ormond. And so uh, Jeff said, here I am, send me. That's the truth of it. So, so we sent them over there. and that was Listen, guys, that was hard. I'm not going to lie to you. I want to be very vulnerable today. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done because it takes about four to five years before you really get established as a church plant, and that was year three for us. Year three, 2018, we laid hands on them. There's another picture here. We laid hands on them right down here. That's their logo in the background, and we sent them, and it, and it, felt, it, it felt scary. It felt risky. It felt risky. Uh, But it also was the right thing to do. One of our cultural values here is that we send servants. We're not here to just accumulate more and more people. That is not what the kingdom of God is all about. In fact, Jesus said this in John 12, 24. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and what? And what? Dies. Dies. That's the Christian life. You die to yourself. You deny yourself. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's what we did. We died. We, <laughs> we sent Jeff and those five families over there, and it's been five years. And I went and on Sunday, and I wish I had a picture. Uh, I was going to turn and take a selfie of, I don't know, almost 200 people that were packed into that little remodeled church there. Young people, young families, people that didn't grow up in church. Jeff did not grow up in church. I did. He's able to reach people, and we're going to talk about this in the next few weeks, God's sovereignty and salvation. God uses means. He even uses our own personalities, our experience, the way we present the gospel. It's ultimately his spirit that resurrects a dead heart, but God uses means. And God has used Jeff and his leadership team there and the vision and the gospel, obviously, to reach people that I would probably never rub shoulders with. And that's a win for the kingdom, right? We are not about uh, supersizing. Jeff and I didn't come over here to build a big mega church. I, I couldn't do that anyway. I'm not clever enough or engaging enough. But when we reach a certain uh, mass index of people, we want to plant another church. That's why we're here. We want to be a church that plants churches that makes disciples who make disciples. That's why we came here. That's what our our goal, our mission, our vision is. So... uh All that to say, greetings from your sister church, Grace Life Beachside on Norman Beach. They're doing well, and they're thankful. They're thankful for us laying hands on them and and sending them out. So uh, with that being said, let's stop and pray, and we're going to jump into Romans 9 together, okay? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. It is a joy to be here again, to be back in Romans 9, and to uh, embrace your sovereignty. Even as I'm feeling it right now, With this uh, remote not working, Lord, you're sovereign over that. You're sovereign over traffic lights and uh, pro-presenter remotes. You're sovereign over every single person who came here today in the cold weather, every single person who didn't come but turned on the TV, the people uh, in other states that can't be here that are watching. And you're sovereign over every word that I speak or every word that you restrain me from speaking today. And I embrace that. That is good news because you are dependable. You're reliable. You're trustworthy. You're good. You're wise. You're you're faithful, Lord, and I trust you. You're trustworthy. You've shown yourself to be over and over and over. So I pray today that you would help us to engage you where we're at. Lord, this is one of the most relevant doctrines in the Bible. I pray that you would help me to show its relevance. And even though this is just an introductory sermon, we're not even going to get to to talk about all the verses that, that Bill read. I pray that the people of Grace Life Church would be so excited and eager and hopeful and curious to dig into these next three chapters together as a church, to read them, to ask God to open their eyes, to teach them, to challenge them, to comfort them, to strengthen them. Uh, and this could be a journey that we take together, Lord. May today be, the, be the, the start of something beautiful and powerful and helpful and transformative. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, keep your Bibles open. Romans chapter 9, that's where we're going to be. And uh, we're going to talk about God's sovereign plan. This is just an introduction. It's just an introduction. And fewer doctrines of the Christian faith are more comforting than this doctrine that we're going to talk about today. And few doctrines of the Christian faith are more challenging than this doctrine that we're going to talk about today, the sovereignty of God. And what I want to do before we really get started is I want to define what I mean by sovereignty, because you probably don't hear that word a lot unless you're reading it in some type of Christian literature or publication. Honestly, or unless you live in Britain, right? The sovereign, the monarch, the king, the queen. Uh, God save the king. I keep saying queen, it's king now, right? Long live the king. Because a sovereign, as, as, a, uh, as a person, it's a ruler. It's somebody who is seated on a throne and they exercise control or they govern a nation or a city or whatever, province, whatever it is that they've, they've been uh, seated as the sovereign over. So when we talk about sovereign, that's royalty language. What does it mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? Here's what it means. It means God has the power and God has the right to do whatever he pleases. Let me say that again. This is a simple definition as I can come up with. God's sovereignty, it means this. It means that God has the power and he has the right to do whatever he sees fit. In other words, he's authorized. God doesn't need a permission slip from us to do something, especially if it's something that we don't want him to do or that we don't think is a good idea. He doesn't need a permission slip from us. He doesn't even need to consult us, right? He doesn't even have to inform us what he's going to do, but he's so gracious that he often does that, doesn't he, in his word. Sometimes through his spirit, he prepares us for hard things that are coming our way. It's God's right and God's power to do all that he decides to do. So when he decides to do something, He does it, and nobody can stop God. That's because he's sovereign. You know, we have a branch of of, uh, a form of government in the United States that has three branches of checks and balances. We have a president, but we don't give the president as much power as, as other countries give their monarch. We have a judicial branch, we have an executive branch, and we have a legislative branch. Why do we have those branches? Why did our forefathers write that into the government system that we have? Would you believe that it was the doctrine of of mankind's sinfulness and depravity that they did that, that motivated them to do it? Why? Because if a human being has ultimate power and control, is that a good thing? If they don't have any checks and balances, they can do whatever they want? Uh, No. What if they want to do something nefarious or corrupt, which human beings often do, don't they? Then nobody could stop them. If you look at forms of government in the past that had no checks and balances, say, for example, a Roman emperor... It didn't end well, did it? In fact, there's a book I've often referenced. It's called The Most Evil Men and Women in the World. And two or three chapters in that are Roman emperors that just went absolutely berserk. Some of the most pagan uh, people in the world were Gentile authorities, man. And, and Jewish authorities, too. You read the Old Testament. And, uh, They had ultimate control, and it corrupted them. Absolute control is absolutely corrupt, corrupt often. But God has no checks, and he has no balances. And listen, that's good news for us, because God doesn't need those things. We need checks and balances, because we're not trustworthy. But God is trustworthy. He doesn't need those. And you say, what do you mean? Well, is God good? Ultimately, he is. So what do we need to check him for? Why does God need us to consult and say, hey, is it okay if I do this thing that I want to (laughs) do? He doesn't need to consult us anyway because he doesn't, he, doesn't any he doesn't lack wisdom. Think about it. How many things have you learned this week for the first time? Maybe good or maybe bad things, right? L- let me blow your mind for a minute. God has never learned anything throughout all eternity. Not once. God doesn't learn something. He's never surprised by anything. God never looks at your life and goes, huh? <laughs> that's new. God's never on the edge of his throne looking down. <laughs> wringing his hands. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. Nothing takes God by surprise. He sees the, the end from the beginning. He's actually controlling and orchestrating history, bringing it to its ultimate conclusion, which is no small, small feat if you think about it. I mean, even right now, what's the world population up to, folks? Eight billion? <laughs> think of all, it's, it's mind blowing, but it should be worship invoking. Think of eight billion people all with their own thoughts, possibilities, plans, words, experiences, hurts, pains, sufferings, afflictions, anger, fears. God sits sovereignly and reigns over all of those things. He reigns supreme. uncontested. When I was a kid, we used to watch wrestling or we would watch boxing and they would always say, introducing the world heavyweight champion of the world, uncontested, unrivaled, uh, and that's, that's baloney. They're always contested. They're always rivaled. And when they get older, they get beat, right? Unless they resign when they're at the top, whatever, or retire. But God is unchallenged, uncontested. I love, if you read through the book of Exodus, when he, he brings the plagues to Egypt because he's showing Pharaoh. It even says, Hebrews, I love Hebrews, such a beautiful and concrete language. He says to Moses and Aaron, you tell Pharaoh, let my people go or else I'm going to plague him with many plagues. And in Hebrew, it means, I'm going to strike him. And here's what it means in street clothes. He says, you tell Pharaoh he thinks he's God, he's about to meet God, and I'm going to knock him out. What Exodus means, it's God's supremacy on display. And all the plagues of Egypt, I don't know if you know this or not, all the plagues in Egypt, all 10 of them were polemical attacks that that targeted the false gods and goddesses of Egypt. There was a god of the Nile River named Happy. (laughs) It's almost poetic justice, isn't it? God made happy very unhappy whenever he turned the Nile River, and and happy doesn't exist, by the way, probably a demon behind it. He turned the Nile River to blood and everything died in it. What was God doing? He was saying, hey, look, you can worship this little false god named happy, but I want you to know I reign and I rule over all the waters in Egypt. Oh, you don't believe me? Well, here, here's some blood for you and some dead fish. Now go find water on your own. See how that works for you. He did the same. All you follow, the frogs, the lice, the gnats. The boils, the cattle, the weather, God is showing, I reign supreme, I'm God. I'm seated on my throne, and I control this planet that you live on. This is what it means to be sovereign. No checks, no balances at all. Tommy's sovereign plan, how does that sound? Or you're a sovereign plan. Let me, I re, I really, I'm going to labor to make this relevant to you today. I guarantee you, everybody in here had a plan for your life. And if you're sovereign, that plan hasn't changed at all. And if you're sovereign, you've been able to carry it out without any hiccups or interruptions or changes, right? Just like your New Year's resolution, those are going awesome right now, right? You know, God's never had a resolution in his life. Why why do we make resolutions? We get insight. We're like, dang, I'm 10 pounds overweight. How'd that happen? i got to do something about that. I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. God's never done a resolution in his entire eternal existence because he's never learned anything new. He's never made a mistake. Things have never gone off the the rails, off the tracks. But our plan is not sovereign, is it? It's subject to change because you can't have two sovereign plans by definition. One has to go, and that's ours, and that's good news for us. These three chapters are going to prove that to us. Jackie Hill Perry had a quote. She said this once in her book, Holiness. If God is holy, this is mind-blowing. If God is holy, or since God is holy, he is holy, then he can't sin. True? Okay. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me or you. True? If he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Bam. <laughs> Blows your mind, doesn't it? So why don't we trust God? That's a good question. That's a good question. This chapter is going to tap into that. God is dependable, He's reliable, He's trustworthy, He's good. He's not mischievous like Loki, you know, like the other false gods and goddesses. He's not capri. He, he doesn't have a capricious nature or fly off the handle like Zeus. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. I suppose every person in this room who's encountered this doctrine of God's sovereignty, you have, you have your own story about coming to grips with it and how it first appeared to you maybe as something menacing or ominous or threatening or made you apprehensive like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on a minute. I know God's, God's in heaven and that he's powerful and that he rules and, and, and he reigns and, and he's sovereign, but I mean, I have a free will, right? And I can do whatever I want, and God's not going to intrude into my freedom, surely. He's not going to impose His sovereign will on my free will, because God would never do something like that, would He? (laughs) I mean, I used to think that. Maybe you did too. Maybe you still do. And if you do, and this represents a threatening, menacing sermon, and you don't like it, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to pray, study the Bible, and stick it out, man. Come back and then go home and read these things in the Word and see, is this who God really is? Is this what God is really like? And do I feel threatened and challenged because in my own mind, I've, I've I fashioned an image of God that was, that was uh, palatable for me, a God, that I, a God that I liked, a God that maybe I could control. I don't like this God that I'm reading about here. So I want to challenge you to do that and encourage you to do that. This is a great opportunity to remind you, you know, we're in Romans. We're going to be there for a long time, folks. And I want to invite you to read the book. Read it together. Read chapters 9, 10, and 11. Pray for God to show you the relevance and why that's such good news for us. Everybody has a story about how they came to grips with this this doctrine. And Jonathan Edwards, in his biography, has always struck me. I want to read just a little bit of it. He said this, and I'm not reading all of it because it's very lengthy. He said, from childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and His justice and thus eternally dealing with men and women according to His sovereign pleasure. He's talking about salvation. My mind rested in it. Before, his mind resisted it, but he came to a place where his mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections, and there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. That last part, my first conviction was not so. And listen, your first conviction may not be so either, and that's okay. If that's the case, it probably means you're thinking about it the right way, because if you heard when Bill read this passage, the 24 verses, and he, Paul goes even deeper than the first 24, obviously, there's two more chapters to go. But Paul is a very good teacher, and he anticipates objections to what he's going to say. And a good teacher not only anticipates objections, but deals with them. And the Apostle Paul does that. So if you're thinking about the sovereignty of God and you're sharing some of the same objections that Paul is dealing with, you're, on, you're, you're in good company. You're on the right track. If you have a view of God's sovereignty that doesn't, you don't feel your personal freedom being threatened, you may not be thinking about it the right way. Does that make sense? That's what the Apostle Paul does in this chapter here. Edwards went from an objector to a relisher, and that's been, that's been so many people's experience and story with this. I even think of Jesus when he was ministering the gospel and in his humanity, he was going from town to town and facing rejection, rejection, rejection. And he preached perfect sermons that were the perfect length. <laughs> Ha-ha, right? And still people rejected it. Man, that brings comfort to me. Have you ever thought, man, if I would just... I'm, just, I'm not preaching the gospel the right way. I'm not, I'm not sharing my testimony right. I'm not witnessing, I'm not using the right Bible verses. Surely if, if God would just help me to do that, then they would believe. Jesus preached the gospel perfectly and it was rejected multiple times by people who should have embraced it, the Jews. And on one occasion, Jesus said this. He was preaching the gospel. Religious, religious people rejected it and were hostile and oppressive to him. And Jesus said this he said I thank you Father that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent but you had revealed them unto babes for such was pleasing in your sight. Do you hear what Jesus is doing as a man he is embracing the doctrine of his father's sovereignty and really his own sovereignty right because God would transfer that to him uh, Matthew 28 all authority and heaven and on earth has, be given, has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, right? That's, that's fuel for missions. But Jesus would say, I thank you. Have you, ever, have you ever felt that way? Man, you're doing ministry. You have a hard audience. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your best friend. Somebody very near and dear to you. And they're just rejecting the gospel or they're rejecting biblical truth. And your heart is breaking. And I'm telling you, there's no better time to embrace the sovereignty of God, not to become complacent, we're going to deal with that, or cold and detached, or or leave off prayer and say, I give up, I wash my hands. No, but to say, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. This breaks my heart, and surely it grieves your heart, but you have a sovereign plan. That's, That's the application of this. So why is Romans chapter 9 here because it's it's different. We just finished chapter 8 and basically chapter 8 ends on, on on a high note, doesn't it? In fact, just to remind you really quick, chapter 8 is probably one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. And there's not one command or imperative in it. There's not a grocery list of things you're supposed not a to-do list for you. You read Romans 8, it's all promises. It's all filled with assurance. Powerful assurance that if you belong to God, if you are in Christ, you can never be out of Christ. If God has saved you through His Son, you can't lose or forfeit that salvation. Because in Romans 9 is going to show you because you didn't really do anything to achieve it anyway, right? All you contributed was your sin. Jesus did the saving, you did the sinning. But Romans chapter 8 is filled with promises. And it basically says once you're in Christ, you're His. You're not going anywhere, He's not going anywhere. You belong to Him. You're protected. Who can lay a charge against God's elect? And then it ends basically in saying this. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. That's the answer, right? But Paul knows he's writing this letter to a church, and it's filled with primarily Gentiles. In Rome, it was a Gentile primarily and predominantly a Gentile church. There's only two kinds of people in the world, Jew and Gentile, right? And Rome was filled with Gentile Christians. Thank God that they're turning to Jesus. But that, that leads to a question. What's happening to the Jews? Because they were God's chosen people, right? You know, Romans 8 says, hey, if you're in Christ, you are one of God's chosen people. He has made a covenant with you, and He's going to keep it forever. And then the Jews that would be reading this letter would, would be thinking, okay, great, that's good news, but didn't God make a covenant promise to the Jews? Didn't He promise that they were His people, and He pledged Himself to them, and yet the Jews by and large, have rejected Jesus, haven't they? When this letter was written, they had rejected him. Paul knew that. They had stoned him and his missionary company and left him for dead. And so Paul knows he's got to deal with this objection because surely it's going to surface in people's minds. Because if Paul doesn't address this question, Romans 8 rings hollow, right? Right? Yeah, okay, got it. God makes covenant promises. God calls out a people for himself, and he promises that he's never gonna leave them or forsake them. Got it, Paul. Uh, what about the Jews? So Paul is answering this question that he takes three chapters to do it. This is not an interruption in the flow of Romans. This is, this is really, a, one person wrote a book on this chapter, and they called it the justification of God. In other words, God is going to justify what he's doing in redemptive history so that we can trust him from Romans 8 that all those promises are yes and amen. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is doing here. He's answering a question, and he takes three chapters to do that. But listen, this is not the only place that you're going to find this, this doctrine, this truth about God's sovereignty. In fact, I want to read just a couple. I want to read just a couple of passages. Guys, I still don't think my, uh, my pro-presenter is going to work for me today. It's not. I'm sorry. don't know why. Can you pull that up? Daniel chapter 4. Now, let me give you a little context here. Daniel chapter 4, one of the most powerful kings in the history of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. He had an amazing kingdom. He built Babylon, and he was very proud and arrogant. And God warned him. He sent Daniel. He gave a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel interpreted the dream, and he told Nebuchadnezzar what it meant. He said, listen, you're arrogant, you're haughty, you're proud. You better give glory to God, or he's going to humble you. And Nebuchadnezzar Forgot about it. And one day he was walking on his palace and he said, Is this not mighty Babylon that I have built with my hands? How majestic am I? How glorious am I? And that very moment, the Bible says that God struck him and he humbled him. And you know what he did? He made him insane for seven years. This is crazy. The most powerful king in the world, God turned him uh, basically into an animal. It says he sent him out, he drove him away from men. And he lived uh, in the woods, he lived in the pastures, he lived in the meadows, wherever. It says that his hair grew long like the feathers of an eagle, his nails grew long like the claws of a bird, and he was wet with the dew of heaven, and he ate grass like an ox for seven years. Can you imagine that? Somebody comes to see the king, where's the king? And they're looking around like, they're like, trust me, you don't want to see him right now, he's very busy, and he's like... So seven years, and then all all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God restored his reason to him. And this is his testimony. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Listen to this sovereign language. Here's a pagan king acknowledging what some Christians struggle to acknowledge. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Next slide. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to whose will? His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Don't you love that God can take a pagan king? And say, bow the knee. And the king says, no, I'm amazing. He says, bow the knee. (laughs) Next slide. It gets even better. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are what? Right. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody turned you into an animal for seven years, do you think you would be tempted to say, you can't do that? Not fair. I didn't deserve that. Who do you think you are? What what does Nebuchadnezzar say? All his works are what? Right. It was the right thing to do, God. I was an idiot. I was, there's another word to use, right? (laughs) Right. All his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. <laughs> Don't you like that? He's able to humble. Can God humble you? Go talk to Nebuchadnezzar. He can. He can. Spurgeon used to talk about the Christians and the pastors, and he said there's only two kinds of Christians and two kinds of pastors, humble or humbled. You want to be the former, not the latter, right? I love that testimony. That's not the only one. Here's another verse. I think I alluded to it earlier, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Jesus is about to go to heaven, and these are basic instructions before leaving earth, and he tells his disciples, the last thing he said is, hey, I'm ascending, and and you're about to scatter and go evangelize the whole world, and here's the fuel and the truth that I want to drive you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Do you know what the basis is for you and I to do global missions, to stick with it when that unbelieving child is stubborn and calloused? Or that neighbor seems to be checked out when you're sharing about Christ. It's, listen, Jesus has all authority. Do you realize what that means? All authority on heaven and earth. That means this. I love what R.C. Sproul used to say. There is not one rogue or maverick molecule in all the world, no particle of dust that will not bow the knee to the will of King Jesus. That means there's no such thing as a closed country. You're like, we can't go there because... It's against the law, and it's like, well, there's a higher law. I think we've already been commanded to go there, bro. <laughs> and if God commanded you to go there, uh, you're, in a, you're in the best, pl- the safest place in the world is the center of God's will. And I will tell you this: if if somebody in this room is wrestling with an evangelistic endeavor or whether or not uh, God has called you to go do missions, you're wrestling with the wrong question. the The, the better question is where and to who. He's already told you go. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given me. Therefore, what? Go. And listen, if God is not sovereign, don't waste your time. If you do not believe that God is sovereign and that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Him, then why waste your time, my friends? Why waste your time? Because it's going to take about five minutes before your plan to reach somebody with the gospel is going to get derailed or or redirected. And I will tell you this, just to make this really practical, If I did not embrace God's sovereignty, especially God's sovereignty as it concerns salvation, to open blind eyes, to resurrect a dead, cold uh, heart that's wrapped up in a coffin, if I did not believe that, I would never have have moved here from Ormond Beach and planted this church with Jeff Eckert. There is no way I would have ever done that, especially... Having four kids already and then deciding to have two more (laughs) while we planted this church. I wouldn't have done it. There's no way. It would have been too stressful, too apprehensive, too fearful for me, too much of a I'm not a risk taker by nature. I'm not. Um, Anyway, I could say a lot more about that. Next verse. Just to prove to you that this is not just in one place and it's not just Paul. Ephesians 1:11. In him that is Christ. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that scary word that we're going to learn more about, predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Man, that is a great verse to underline and memorize. God works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His will. Is that good news for you, or do you feel threatened by that and put off by that? That depends. That depends on your view of God. It depends on your theology of God proper. Do you believe that God is good and that God is wise and that God is just? Well, then great. His will needs to reign supreme and yours needs to take a back seat and get gladly realigned with his. He works all things after the counsel of his own will so that, he, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I think there's one, one or two more. Oh man, this is a good one. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And then maybe my favorite verse of God's sovereignty anywhere in the Bible comes at the end of Job. This was the first book I ever read as a Christian. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a job. I didn't know it was Job, actually. That's how dumb I was and illiterate. Anyway, I remember, man, there's a bunch of dense, thick middle chapters in Job, but the first few chapters and the last few, it blew me away. It blew me away. It blew me away, especially when I was reading that God brought suffering into Job's life. And you remember what his wife said? She said, Job, why don't you go ahead and curse God and die? And you remember what Job said? He said, Shall we not accept the good things from the hand of God and not the evil? And the Bible says this, in saying this, in saying this, Job did not sin with his lips or charge God with wrong. That blew me away because I read that it was the devil who did all those things to Job, right? But Job confesses to his wife, God brought evil. He's not saying God's the author of evil, okay? God's not the author of sin. But he was saying God either permitted this, I mean, God's, if you, if you start digging like this, this thing happened in your life and and that gummit, I want to know who's, whose fault it is. I want to know who to blame. And somebody gives you a shovel and you start digging. Well, this person wronged me. Well, there was corruption here. You keep digging, you're finding, but if you get to the very bottom of that thing that happened in your life, what you're going to find there is what Job confessed to his wife. God ultimately has authority and is sovereign over everything in the world. Every demon, every person, every thought, every event, every tragedy, Every, every act of suffering, every betrayal, every painful, harmful thing, and every good thing. But it says that Job did not charge God with wrong, which is me as a very young, naive, brand new Christian, I was learning, okay, it's not wrong to say, God, you're sovereign over this. God has ordained this to be in my life, and I have to trust him. I have to know ultimately this is for my good. I read John Piper's Mom was in Israel and she was on a tour bus and a van collided with it that had lumber strapped to the top and there was a four by four post on top of the van and the four by four post flew through the window of the bus and hit John Piper's mom in the head and killed her instantly. And John Piper had to reckon with that. And here's what he said. He said, I cannot worship a God that can't control a piece of lumber that flies through the air. I can't worship a God that wasn't in control of something like that because how many other things are outside his control and why in the world would I worship him if he can't control that? (laughs) I know that's heavy. That's a heavy way to say it, but man, I remember reading that when he said that years ago and I thought, man, that's that's a good way to think about it. Put your theology to the road test when suffering and everything else hits. So this is... This is a relevant doctrine for all of us. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, and I have a slide on this, hope you can see that. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which you lay your head. And it comes back to what he said in Romans 8, God is is for us, and if God is for us, who can be against us? See, we don't often feel like God is for us, do we? Have you ever felt like you were a a chess piece on a board and you're in the middle of some cruel divine game? Have you ever felt like God was just tricking you or toying with you? or That it's like a, a game of cat and mouse? So many people do, and this doctrine is our center of gravity. It stabilizes us. It brings us back to the reality and the truth that God is good, He is sovereign, He is wise, He sees, He knows, He understands, He, he has compassion for us, and He will act. So, that was all introduction, and I know it, w- it was, yeah, I know, I know. T- today, <laughs> today's sermon is really just an introduction, but I have three really quick points that I want to bring, okay? I promise, promise. God's sovereignty, it humbles us in good seasons, it provides hope in hard seasons, and it gives us joy in all seasons. But it also comes with a set of risks, okay? It comes with a set of risks, and we're going to talk about this doctrine for a while uh, in the weeks to come, and you're going to be engaging this doctrine, you're going to be thinking about it, and I want to give you some rules of engagement, okay? And you can consider these warnings too. So, here they are. Number one, has... Has your understanding of the sovereignty of God weakened your witness? Has it made you cold and indifferent as an evangelist? Number two, is it based on the Word of God? Are your thoughts about God's sovereignty grounded in Scripture Or are they based on your own emotions or your own feelings or your own experience or some philosophical book you read or human psychology or some other discipline that can be helpful at times? I'm not anti-psychology and I'm not anti-philosophy, okay? Those are great servants, but they're poor masters. And three, does it lead you to worship? Does, Does it lead you to worship? Here's point one, has it weakened your witness? Now check this out, put this next slide up for us. Look at these first three verses here, okay? Here's the Apostle Paul. He's going to talk about God's reign, God's supreme reign, and he's dealing with all these Jews, by and large, have rejected, have rejected God. And God has a sovereign plan in that. But you know what? Let me tell you this. It broke Paul's heart. If they could find the original scroll in Greek that Paul wrote for Romans, it would be tear-stained. He could not talk about the sovereignty of God as if he were in a lecture hall. As if he was in a lab, and it's just clinical, and he's going to analyze it. And he's cold and detached and indifferent. No, God forbid. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he's talking about Ethnic Israel. He's talking about the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites. He, he brought, I mean, he, he's the one that said earlier in, in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Thank God for the Greeks, right? We're all Greeks. <laughs> you are. I'll explain to you later. You're a Gentile. Anyway, to the Jew first. And Paul, every city he went in, where did he go First to the synagogue. And by and large, what was the reaction? Rejection. Get out of here. We hate your guts. We're going to stone you. We're going to kill you. You don't represent God. You're a liar. You've betrayed Judaism. And it broke Paul's heart. It broke his heart. And listen, friends, if we're talking about God's sovereignty, and as we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation, we're going we're to have to come to grips with not everyone will be saved. Not everyone is saved. Perhaps you've already known somebody who died without Christ. As far as you know, we can't fully be, we don't know what goes on in the mind and heart of a man. But you look at their life, you've talked to them about the worldview, the religion, their worldview, their religion, their understanding of Christianity, and it breaks your heart, and you've got to grapple with that. And you know what? It's the right thing for your heart to be broken. God forbid that we ever get so theologically astute and filled with doctrinal, I ah, don't worry about it, it's God's sovereign plan, Right? That's terrible. That's a terrible way to think about and talk about. This is more than just an intellectual problem to Paul. He writes about the sorrow and the anguish he feels over them. And in these verses, I didn't put it up here, but in the beginning of chapter 10, he talks about, I'm, I'm, I will never stop praying for them. I love that. So I could add that in with point one, right? If this weakens your witness or if you leave off prayer, you're like, you know, God's sovereign. I'm not even going to pray for that person's salvation anymore. They've already rejected the gospel. Why bother with it? You know, St. Augustine's mother, Monica, he was one of the greatest theologians in the first century. And his mother wept over him. She prayed over him. She pleaded with him. He had lived a profligate life, was far from God, he was very intelligent, very set in his ways and his thinking about Christianity, and he rejected it, and his mother would not give up. And she kept going to the, her pastor, kept going to her pastor, bugging him, praying, weeping, crying. He eventually said, Monica, go away, for God will not ignore such tears. Which is a dangerous thing to say as a pastor. I don't think I could say it that way, because he was basically saying, God's going to save your son. How can he ignore your tears? But as I look back and read the biography of Augustine man. Doesn't everybody in here that's in the kingdom have somebody like Monica in your life probably? Don't you thank God for them? Don't you thank God? They didn't say, well, looks like my son uh, is not interested in Christianity. It's part of God's sovereign plan. I'm just going to give it up. You're not thinking about God's sovereign plan the right way if that's your response. Paul's heart was broken. His prayers were unending. He had unceasing anguish of heart. And we should too. We should too. There is an urgency in evangelism, an urgency. This is an emergency. This is a crisis. This person is under the wrath of God. Unless they turn and repent and trust Jesus, they're in imminent danger. Charles Spurgeon said this, check this out. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unworn and unprayed for. King David said, rivers of tears run from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Remember when his son Absalom died? Remember whenever he said, well, it was God's sovereign plan. Let's go, guys, back to the kingdom. Remember when he said that? No, he never said that. What did he say? Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, would that it would be me and not you terrible parent but great evangelist <laughs> urgency this truth drove the apostle paul to a radical global embracing mission endeavor all over the world every city and he said i endure all and he meant suffering for the sake of the elect and he and we'll get into this later He knew that there were elect men and women scattered all over the world. He didn't know who they were, and we don't either. We don't either. We preach the gospel to every person, and God chooses the most unlikely people to bestow his grace and favor on. If Paul didn't believe that, he would have never gone. Sarah and I knew a couple years ago, and, uh, man, they loved Jesus. And they had a daughter who grew up in church with them, and she embraced a sinful lifestyle eventually. And she went really, really far from God. And they pleaded with her. They exhorted her. They ended up having to kick her out of their house. And I remember Sarah and I, I can, I can remember the conversation, just how we got in the car and we couldn't believe it. She said, you know what? She said, my daughter has heard the truth and she's rejected the truth. Um, and she said, she's a heathen. She's a pagan. And she basically said, God will be glorified in my daughter's damnation. And in and, and not so many words, she said, I'm done with her. I have written her off. I'm done. And I remember getting in the car and looking at my wife and just thinking, oh, my word, man. But I, do not, I don't judge her, and here's why. I think it's easy for us to get so exasperated with people. And to be and to feel so hurt and to feel so betrayed. Listen, guys, the gospel is a shameful message. You realize that, don't you? This is the book we're in, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. If you have never been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, I will doubt very seriously whether you've ever understood it. Because it's a shameful message. It's a powerful message, but it's a shameful message. And, and her and her husband had just grown exasperated with their daughter. And it brought them to a place where, listen, it's really easy. We're, we're human beings and we want closure, don't we? It's like, I can't live in this tension forever. This is killing me. It's bringing pain and conflict into the marriage, into the home. And it's a lot easier to say, I am done. And this couple had embraced, that was one of their favorite doctrines. They loved to talk about it. They loved to study it. And, but they misunderstood it because if it brings you to a place where you can say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done evangelizing, good riddance, and uh, God can just deal with this in his sovereign plan, but I'm not going to give any more grief toward it. I think that's the wrong reaction to it. There's a, there's a slide I have for this. Uh, William Carey, how many people have heard that name before? William Carey was the father of modern day missions. He wasn't really... Uh, the father of modern-day missions goes much further back biblically than William Carey. But in the 1700s, he had a heart. He, he, he read uh, Captain Cook's Chronicles about his sea adventures, and he heard about the, the heathen and the pagans, and he just had a heart for them. He wanted to take the gospel to them. And so he got converted. He was ordained as a pastor, and one evening he showed up at a pastor's meeting, and the meeting was over, and they invited he and one of his friends to put a question to all the pastors in this room. And so William Carey said, yes, what is the responsibility of the church in fulfilling the Great Commission and taking the gospel to places that it's never been before? And one of the, one of the pastors there stood up, his the artwork for it, point, hit, put his finger, history says he put his finger in William Carey's face, and he said this, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Thank God William Carey didn't listen to him. He didn't sit down. He got up, and he went to India, and he stayed there 41 years without furlough. Made 700 converts there. He didn't see his first convert until seven years. He lost two wives. His first wife went crazy. They had to lock her in an insane asylum, basically. She threatened him with a knife, tried to kill him. If you ever read his story, it's amazing that he even did what he did or stayed there. He lost children to... To a disease, there was, it was malaria ridden, but he was able to not only see converts there, but he brought about social reform. You know, they burned widows in India? Yeah, how about that? If, you lost, if your husband died, you got burned along with his body. That was part of the caste system there. And then also, he brought reform because uh, sometimes babies were, were offered to the, I never pronounced that river there, the, Ga, the Gange, Ganges, thank you. Yeah, part in his biography, he and his, and his buddy were on the river and they saw an infant that was drowning and they rescued it and presented it to the mother and she broke its neck and threw it back in. So that's the kind of people that he went to, mission, to, uh, to minister to the gospel. He also, yeah, I could, I could talk about that forever. But just think about this. And, and the person who said young man sit down to him uh, had embraced supposedly this doctrine of God's sovereignty or had he, or had he? Because everything that man said to him Sit down. Uh, When God's ready to reach unbelievers and he doesn't want your help, all three of those things are wrong, dead wrong. God never said sit down and relax. There's a mission to fulfill, but chill out, right? What did God say? Go. All authority has been given to me, so sit down. That's not what he said, is it? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so you go. Get out there and go. And listen, man, whenever you understand this theology, it always leads to mission. Look at Isaiah in chapter 6. He had one of the grandest views of God's sovereignty. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train, train of His robe filled the temple, and it shook it. And he heard an angelic voice saying, holy, holy, holy. And behold, I'm undone. But an angel was sent with a burning ember from the altar, and he touched his lips, and he said, you're clean. And then he heard a voice saying, who will go for me? And what did Isaiah say? I'm going to sit down, just chill. Somebody else can go. What did he say? Here I am, send me. Good, deep, rich theology should lead us to mission. So don't sit down. Get up and go. And listen, maybe somebody here needs to hear that today. Maybe you came here today and you didn't know it. You've got a stubborn unbeliever in your life. And you've wanted to say what that woman said to me. I'm done, forget it. Or maybe a professing believer that's just rebellious, and it's not repenting, it's not reasonable, and you want to give up, don't do it. Don't do it. Let God's sovereignty be the, the wind. Oh, it's terrible. The wind beneath your wings. There's a better analogy. Let it be something. I don't know. <laughs> Let it be motivation, right? I was thinking about this this morning. You know, if you go to a lecture hall, you get information. If you get a pep time talk at halftime, you get motivation. But sermons are supposed to be transformation. That's what I come here for, man. I want to be transformed by the power of God's word. And I know you do too. And man, let's let this doctrine of God's sovereignty be the motivating factor that, that thrust us out into a dark, hostile world and leverage our lives for the kingdom. That's what God has put us here for. Go. Go. Number two, is it based on... You know what? Let's stop there. We're going to stop there. Because I I, what I don't want to do is rush through this. I think the Apostle Paul would be really angry with me. <laughs> but here's the other two points, because I don't want to leave you hanging, okay? Jerry Bridges said this. Can you put that Jerry Bridges quote up? So I'm almost done, okay? Jerry Bridges said this. He said, don't believe everything you think. You cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the Word. Don't you love that? We're going to talk about some heavy things, guys. God's sovereign and salvation, predestination, election. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, God says. And that bristles some of us because we're control freaks. I don't want anybody else to be in control of my life, especially my salvation, Right? And so what we do is when we read about this doctrine, we encounter it, instantly we think, well, that's not fair. Or we think, well, free will. Or we get really emotional because we know somebody maybe that rejected God. Whatever the reason is, and it leads us into different, you know, psychology or philosophy or emotionalism. And what we've done is we've put God's Word aside and put something on top of God's Word, right? God's Word has authority to tell us, This is who God is, this is what he's like, this is who you are, this is what you're like, this is how God is working out his sovereign redemptive plan in history, this is why it's good news for you. So that's the point we're going to pick up next week, and then the third point is this. Oh man, this is a good one. If your understanding of the sovereignty of God does not lead you to say the same thing that Paul said at the very end of this three-chapter section, he said, oh the depths, oh the depths. Can you put that passage up real quick? at least you can have this in your mind before we dismiss here here it is o oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways and by the way i love the new king james version of that inscrutable his ways here's what it says I'm trying to remember what it says hang on how how let me say it again o oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That's how I memorized that. In the, sorry, it took me a minute. His, his, way, his ways past finding out. In other words, God has this way. His ways are above our ways. And, and sometimes we're not ever gonna figure out, man, why does God do what he does? I know ultimately it's for his glory and it's for our good. I wouldn't do it that way. That's right. Thank God you're not on the divine throne, right? He is. His ways are past finding out. This morning, I arrived here, and my wife left before I did, and she didn't help me uh, dress today. That sounds weird, but you know what I mean, right? She picks out my clothes because I'm an idiot. And I showed up, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, <laughs> which is to say, oh, you're an idiot. I had, on, I had on stripes, and I had on a plaid overcoat, not a jacket, a shirt, a plaid and it was different colors, and I just knew instantly. Oh man, I'm an idiot. It reminded me again. Because listen, guys, fashion faux pas. Newsflash: Stripes don't go with plaid. Black and white stripes don't go with burgundy plaid and white, do they? You don't wear the. They don't go together in our mind, do they? Well, check this out. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in our minds is like that. It's like stripes and plaid. It doesn't go together. It can't go together. It's a mystery. So we don't like mysteries. We don't like tension. So we solve it. We're like, God's ways aren't inscrutable. I can solve this. God's not as sovereign as we think he is. (laughs) You've misunderstood the doctrine, obviously. God's only sovereign this far. He'll never impose himself or go past this boundary into your. That's what we start to do. And then you've violated the the second point. You've gone beyond God's word and you've and you've missed a real Amazing opportunity to worship God and say, you know what, Your ways are above my ways, and I'm going to bow and worship. I'm going to bow the knee and say, Wow, that's amazing. God's trustworthy. His plan is so amazing. I thought I, I, th- I thought I knew it. You know, uh, but God just blew me away. His ways are there's in every major doctrine in the Bible. You're going to find that there's a tension. There's a tension, and usually, Martin Lloyd Jones said this once: Heretics. Heretics didn't start out with <laughs> nefarious and sinister plans. They, they were genuine. Heretics were genuine people who were genu- genuinely mistaken. They tried to solve a riddle of how can God be fully man and, and how can Jesus be fully man and fully God? And you know how a lot of the heretics in the first century went astray? Trying to solve that instead of the mystery of the Trinity. Try unity, three in one. It's a mystery. Try to, if you try to figure that out, you're going to become a heretic. You embrace it, and you submit to it, and you thank God for it, because if God couldn't become a man, you and I couldn't be saved. Thank God for the Trinity, right? And it's the same thing with the responsibility of man. You're responsible for every decision you make, and yet God is sovereign over your entire life. I can't how do you reconcile? Somebody asked Charles Spurgeon that. They said, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? And he said, I didn't know you were supposed to reconcile friends. See, in our mind, they're enemies. They can't exist. They're plaid and stripes. Uh, but in God's plan, they I could say a lot more about that, and I will. And we're going to base it all according to God. <laughs> Not today. Relax. We're going to base it according to God's word. But let me, let me, let me end with this, guys. Let me end with the first point, an urgent appeal to you. God is a sovereign God, and he is love. God is love. Aren't you thankful for that? This sovereign, majestic being has seen fit to, to, in an unspeakable act of condescension, become a human being, subject himself to time, to weakness, become vulnerable to the the, uh, point of death on a cross so that you and I can be reconciled to him. So that you and I can be put right. You heard last week Matt's message. I love the illustration. When you think about this, uh, this is beautiful. Not like a, a puppy is, is cute, but like a thunderstorm is beautiful. It's God's majestic, but he's good. You can trust him and you should trust him. And that means you stop trusting yourself that, hey, I'm going to get right with God because I, it's, it's, uh, you know, my life's going to end, end and I'm going to stand before God and I'll be able to explain why I did what I did. No, you won't. You won't. God demands perfection. God demands absolute righteousness and perfection, and you don't have either of those, and that's a major problem. But the good news is He does, and He offers them to you based exclusively on the life, death, resurrection of His Son. You're either going to trust Jesus, which is the rock you want to build your life on, or you're going to trust your own reason or your own righteousness or your own life or your own system of checks and balances, and it's not going to go well for you. But the good news is you're alive today and you're able to hear what I'm saying or watching from home and understand it. So I plead with you, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why, why in the world would you provoke a God like this to wrath? Why would you do that? God is love and he wants you. He is opening his arms this wide for you to come and bow the knee. And we can get lost in, am I one of the elect? Am I, have I been predestined? That's the wrong question to ask. Here's the right question to ask. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ completely right now for your salvation? Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are convicted and want rest and want salvation and want rescue. His, his arms are wide open. Let's pray.